So on behalf of uh, the Teachers Council at Spirit Rock, I'd like to uh, welcome all of you to this really auspicious day for us. We are very, very happy to have the Vinron Audio here with us today. And this is part of Spirit Rock's ongoing commitment to creating more opportunities for in-depth practice at Spirit Rock. And as you know, my cohort Sally Armstrong and I as co-guiding teachers are really committed to creating more and more of these opportunities for us all to to study uh, as, as deeply as we can in various ways. And in this particular instance, uh, to have the author of this book here, I don't know what that pickup is of that sound, if we can pay attention to that, please. Uh, the, to have, I don't know how many of you have... Actually, that'll be interesting. How many of you have, have read the Satipatthana Sutta? Well, there you go. Look at your audience. <laughs> uh, this book... <laughs> I personally have probably uh, recommended it to a couple thousand people, so I'm not surprised. It's, it's, uh, it's, it was a wonderful contribution uh, to our understanding of the Dharma, and we have utilized it in all of our training programs here at Spirit Rock. Many of you have been in various training programs. And so today we're going to be hearing a further elaboration of, of more material that has come out since, uh, since the Venerable One did this particular book. And it is a chance for us all to receive the experience of hearing the Dharma. So our practice is receiving the Dharma through this kind of the, the hearing, the learning, the wisdom that comes from hearing. And this is our practice that all of us are engaged in today. And just to remind ourselves that we do this by staying in the body, not grasping after the knowledge, but settling back and receiving the wisdom with gratitude. Thank you for being here. Now I try now. Aha, it's working. Good, good. This loudness, I'm reaching you. Louder. <laughs> Better like this? Yeah. There's uh, three topics I want to look at today. And the first will be the four establishments of mindfulness. And I'm going a little bit more into the parallel versions. When I wrote that book, I didn't know Chinese or Tibetan. And since the writing of that book, I learned those languages and I started to go into the area of comparative studies of the early discourses. So my presentation today is very much informed of that broader understanding of the textual sources. Then in the second step, we'll look at mindfulness of breathing, and that time we're going to be practicing together, just running through these 16 steps of mindfulness of breathing. And in the third, I look at something that is not very well known. There's three establishments of mindfulness that were practiced by the Buddha. And after I have covered the first topic, there'll be time for some question and answers. Yeah, what I uh, maybe should also say by introduction is that my presentation is therefore not really a Theravada presentation. Because I'm working with the early sources and I'm comparing them, my presentation is what we call early Buddhism. 
that is already, I think, uh, evident in my book. I'm trying to go back to the suttas and look at the suttas themselves. And that perspective becomes much broader if we are able to look at parallel versions of the same discourse passed on by oral transmission in parallel transmission lineages. In the case of the Satipatthana Sutta, oh, the fellow doesn't want to work. There we are. We have three versions. The one that you're probably all familiar with is the Theravada version. We have two nearly very similar discourses. They only have a difference on the Four Noble Truth in the Diga and the Majjhima version. But then we have two versions of the Satipatthana Sutta transmitted in Chinese. Now, while the Pali discourses reached Sri Lanka in oral transmission and then were written down, these discourses come, the Madhyama Agma version comes from Kashmir. And a written copy was brought to China and was translated in the fourth century. And we also have another version in Ekotarika Agama. This is the counterpart to the Anguttara Nikaya. And this was brought at the same time to China in oral transmission, and we do not know the school. There's a lot of scholarly discussion what kind of school this could be, and so far this has been unsettled. What we can take from that is, in a way, that these early discourses, they don't really belong to a school. They are not the product of a Buddhist school. It's just that this is the canonical version that came down in that Buddhist school. And if we look at these different versions, we find there are considerable differences. And I was discussing that with uh, Philip before. When we look at these differences, for example, in the case of bodily contemplation, what all three versions have in common are just three exercises. The anatomical constitution of the body, the practice of the elements, and the practice of the death body. What does that mean for us? Does it mean we are to chuck out the Satipatthana Sutta? It's not worth anymore? Not really. See, the point is the traditional view that everything we have in the Pali canon is 100% the Buddha's word, that is one extreme. Chucking it all out and doing it according to our own ideas is the other extreme. The middle way is to see what they have in common as the core and what differs as different perspectives that still developed at a very, very early stage but that are not as early as the common core. And this common core, as I said, are these three exercises. Yeah, that is, I didn't bring you the grisly pictures I normally use in my courses. I thought I'm coming the first time here, so I don't want to make too many enemies. (laughs) The idea is to go through the body and experience it as made up of different anatomical parts. And especially for us monastics, this is a very important exercise. I do it every day in the morning because it keeps us away from this idea that the body is in any way beautiful or attractive. The actual way of undertaking this exercise, there is like two main modes I'm aware with. One is a form of intellectual reflection The other one is 
a kind of scanning through the body and feeling it. In my own practice, I like this uh, scanning approach. And what I usually do is I feel the skin, then the flesh and the meaty parts, and then the bones. These are kind of three distinct areas of the body that I can feel very well. And this is basically after getting up and brushing the teeth. This is the first thing I do every morning. And for those of you who have not practiced this exercise, it's perhaps interesting to say that it gives me a lot of joy, a lot of happiness. Makes me smile. Do, 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 do. <laughs> yeah. The next exercise about the four elements. My pictures here are not as ideal as I would like them to be. So on top we have earth. And then on the side we have water. Don't look at the ice. <laughs> it's just for you to know what the picture is about. Fire. And the yeah, wind. I was looking for a long time for something that could pictorially represent wind and I couldn't come up with anything better than clouds. The idea is for basic qualities. Hardness, cohesion, temperature, motion. Inside our body, inside your bodies, inside this room, outside, everywhere the same. The basic idea is to understand that this body is just as much part of nature as anything outside. That makes us give up any kind of conceit or idea I'm something special. This goes. And the next exercise, this is the one when I, when I teach this at university, this is usually the toughest day for the students. <laughs> yeah, death, the dead body. And the idea of this exercise is to look at it and think, this body of mine is going to be just the same. Just like that there. As before I, before I became a Buddhist monk, I was... Uh, living in Italy, and then I was in, in Milan, and there was this, this, this beautiful road. And on the side of the road, in the middle of Milan city, there was this small kind of enclosure. Nobody really noticed it, everybody passing by. And I look inside, and there was this piece of glass, and then a couple of bones and skulls. And it has this thing written, Ciò che sarete noi, noi lo siamo adesso. Chi si scorda di noi, scorda se stesso. What you're going to be, we are now. If you remember us, you're remembering yourself. You, you, if you forget us, you're forgetting yourself. And that is the basic point. And when we live with awareness of death in our everyday life, again, it, a lot of happiness comes. This is another exercise I do every day in the evening, last thing before I go to sleep. Lying down and just being aware that this body is passing away maybe dying this very moment, and I sleep so peacefully after that. Yeah, so this is the common core we have. The anatomical parts, the four elements, one Chinese version has six elements, this is probably a later edition, and the death. Now we come to the second Satipatthana. There again, the common ground is to, there's, there's two different levels of practice. One is we distinguish feelings into three affective types. Something is pleasant, something is unpleasant, 
or it's neither pleasant nor unpleasant, which is neutral. But on top of that simple distinction, there comes an element of evaluation. Is this worldly or unworldly? And the point of this evaluation, this corresponds to a red thread that I think runs through the whole of the Dharma. This distinction between what is wholesome and skillful, what leads me on in the path, and what is unwholesome or at least unskillful in as much as it doesn't really bring me forward on the path to liberation. This basic distinction is already built into this simple exercise. And uh, what you're supposed to be doing when you contemplate feeling is exactly the opposite of our friend here. (laughs) Oh, it's so painful, oh no, oh no, it's so painful, oh no. No. Just seeing pain for what it is, without reacting. There's a beautiful sutta in the Samyutta Nikaya, Salva Sutta, the discourse on the error, which distinguishes between an average normal person's experience of pain and a meditator's experience of pain. Both experience the pain. This is like one error. But the difference is the meditator doesn't react to it. The normal person says, oh, it's painful. I'm getting sick. How am I going to get to work? What is going to happen? My whole body. We build up a whole huge dark cloud of mental preoccupation on top of that pain. So instead of that one error, another error, another error. But the meditator is able to see pain for what it is. I have a, I have a very, um, not particularly healthy body, and so I get a lot of opportunity to work with pain, and I'm so grateful for that. I learned so much from being with pain. I don't wish you this learning opportunity, but I am myself quite grateful for that. And we come to the next Satipatthana. Here again we have contemplation of mental states. The common ground, the second and the third Satipatthana in the parallel version is very similar. First is the recognition of unwholesome states of mind, like lust, anger, delusion, etc. And the second is uh, the recognition of the presence or absence of higher states of mind. This is interesting because it shows us the Satipatthana is working in two complementary areas. One is everyday life. At least I hope you don't get that much of lust and anger in your meditation. Where the point is to recognize when we get upset, instead of getting involved with, he shouldn't have said that, and next time I'm going to tell him off. All this build up, instead we go down and see just, I'm angry. The other one is to monitor our experience when we are actually in deep meditation. It's very important also. So the point is not to be giving in to the blah, 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 but to see the mental condition that underlies that experience. Contemplation of Dharma is the fourth Satipatthana. We again have considerable differences. Five aggregates, six sense doors, four noble truths, not found in the parallel versions. Four noble truths not found at all, 
five algates not found at all, six sense fairs in only one of the Chinese versions. What is the common ground are the five hindrances and the seven factors of awakening. And in one of the Chinese versions, we don't get ex even real instructions for the hindrances. They are just mentioned at the beginning. But the five hindrances and the seven factors of awakening stand in such a close relationship that that makes a lot of sense. So this is the core of contemplation of Dharma. This obviously does not mean that we cannot contemplate the Four Noble Truths or the Five Aggregates or the Six Senses, what I was saying before with Philip. It's just that this gives us the central taste. This is the essence of contemplation of dharmas. So what's the essence? Get out the hindrances and develop the factors of awakening. Five hindrances, I'm just briefly listing them here. This two wanting, rejecting, the sloth and topo when everything is kind of this, and the rest doesn't worry when everything is going like this, <laughs> and the doubt when we don't really know which way to go, how things to do. So here we have the two on top, sensual desire and aversion, and at the bottom we have sloth and torpor and restlessness, and in the middle we have doubt. And in actual practice, doubt usually doesn't occur so often in actual practice. And when it happens in the meditation session, it's something we usually have to sort out later. So the real practical relevant thing are the, are the four yellow fellows, the four smileys. And you can really recognize them. There is this, this loss of the center by wanting or not wanting, and what I was just playfully trying to show you, this kind of slowing down, too slow, like a, oh yeah, like a tape recorder when you put the speed down, or this speeding up, getting too fast. And if we reduce it to this kind of just keeping the center and keeping the proper balanced speed, that is a very easy way to practice contemplation of the hindrances within deeper stages of meditation when you are trying to go further and there is a little bit something that doesn't allow you to go deeper in concentration, you can just check this. Very simple. No need to get into too much of conceptualization. Yeah, and when those five hindrances are out of the mind, then the mind becomes able to develop the factors of awakening. And here mindfulness stands in first position. And it is based on mindfulness that the others arise. Investigation of phenomenon could be phenomena in general, could be the Dharma as teaching. The term itself, Dhamma we don't know if it's singular or plural. We have other passages that allow both. Out of that investigation, one gets a energy, inspiration, and that gives joy. But that joy naturally gives power to tranquility. Tranquility leads to concentration. Concentration becomes equanimity, balance. Not sure if you can see that picture, there's some birds up in the sky. It's from the Dhammapada, there's uh, this idea that those who have reached awakening are like birds in the sky, you can't, you can't see their tracks. Yeah, that is um, 
quick run through the four Satipatthanas from a comparative perspective. And now time for any questions to this topic. And when we are finished with questions, then we do some little meditation and I go on with my other topics. So if you have any comment, question, suggestion, anything that relevant to this first part. Yes, please. The terms is Samisa and Miramisa, and the literal translation, that's actually how the Chinese translate it, is with flesh, fleshly, and unfleshly. So I think it basically represents that idea that joy that is of a sensual type, nice chocolate, whatever, is something that belongs to the worldly type. But the joy of meditation, the joy of concentration, the joy of deeper insight, the joy, of, the joy of letting go, the joy of giving, that is something that leads us upwards. Yes, and afterwards, at the back. No. Uh, yes, um, I'm interested in the translations and how perhaps in Sanskrit and perhaps also in Pali there seem to be compound words so th where you translated contemplating the body, there are translated practicing body contemplation on the body, which is a little bit different nuance. And I'm wondering if that is present in the Pali or Sanskrit. There's kaye kayano pasiviharati. In relation to the body, he dwells contemplating the body would be a very literal translation. And that is the same in the Sanskrit. And that's the same in the Chinese. I often don't remember the Tibetan. Lovely. At the back. Uh, besides commonality of words, was there any commonality of nonverbals, such as call and response? Was there similar rhythms? I, I have not understood you. Commonality? You mean you're talking about the oral transmission? Yes. I actually think so. There are certain rhythms they use, and we can detect that. For example, there is one feature we call the law of waxing syllables. So what they do is, they, they, if, if usually when we get something, we get different terms. For example, if they want to say somebody's old, they will say, Jinnu vuddum hallakato. They have same words, giving the same sense from slightly different angles, and they are usually ordered in, in an ascending series. So if you do actual recitation, you really get this rhythm feeling of the oral transmission. And that's, that's actually very helpful for us to understand. And we can sometimes detect when later developments are there, they do no longer fit the rhythm. There is, for example, the angas, the, the nine angas, there's this uh, uh, very early distinction of textual types. And how does it go? Exactly. It, it goes into, it, you can put it into three compartments, but the last one, the last in the line is, is shorter than the one before. In the Pali version, it has Abhuta Dhamma Vidhalla. Abhuta Dhamma Vidhalla. Huh? Five, three? No. 
And all the Chinese parallels have it the opposite direction. So there we can see that quite probably original recitation rhythm was having the short one and then the long one. Yeah, these, 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 these things, I mean, they are not maybe so interesting for those who are just there for the practice, but for us they're very interesting because they give us a feeling of this oral transmission and that gives us some background to understand these differences. It's not that there's some Mara there sitting there and now I'm going to change these things a little bit around. <laughs> these reciters were very seriously trying to do their best to transmit, but they didn't have any paper to write on that time, leave alone manuscript or anything. Anything that had to be transmitted had to be from here to here, from here to here, nothing else. And so they used all these tools like the rhythm, like the making it also stereotype. You open one of these suttas and you go like, yeah, they're always saying the same thing, no? <laughs> the repetitive nature is if particularly to facilitate oral transmission. But back to the practice. Any questions about the practice? Yes, please. Yes, please. No. And it's not that the Chinese moved it in front. My suspicion is the Pali moved it to the back. <laughs> There's no particular reason. These are just errors of transmission. That's, that's a very good point. Many scholars actually try to find out why something changed. And I have, I'm, I think, I think I can claim that I'm the one who has done most study of comparative early discourses among scholars right now. I have done a lot. And it's obvious that you can't explain these things by trying to find some reason. It's just the natural dynamics of oral transmission. And it's very, very seldom that one gets the impression that somebody has consciously tried to change something. But it's really just the natural way. I mean, we all know that somebody tells us something and we tell it somebody else and tell it somebody else and what comes out in the end is that, wow, it's quite different. <laughs> Yes, please. In the analysis that you've done, you've divided it into, pulled out the core material, so that divides into core and non-core. And I'm curious how much non-core material there is in the Chinese versions compared to the Pali versions. You know, what else is there in addition to those things? Is it a lot more? Basically, the one of the Chinese, the one we don't know is school, is very short. The Pali is middle, and the other Chinese is even longer. And the other Chinese has parts in it which definitely do not make sense. Like under body contemplation, it has contemplating the uh, reviewing sign, that would be the Pachavekana Nimitta in, 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 in Pali. And it has other things, seeing lights. And I mean, it has stuff that clearly does not belong under body. So what we think is that there's this basic distinction into four Satipatthanas that is definitely early. We find it in many suttas. But a detailed exposition of what these four are about, also within, if we, if, if, even if we talk about the Buddha's lifetime, that seems to be at a later stage, because the location is Kuru country. And that is not really the area where the Buddha was teaching in the beginning. It's, it's kind of like near Delhi somewhere. 
And so that this detailed exposition is a little bit later giving exact examples and probably what I am being presenting to you now would have been the core. But there are other things that fit into it. And so it's not surprised that during oral transmission more things came to be added. That's the way we would look at it. But I admit that uh, Satipatthana Sutta, it, it was quite a shock for me when I started to study this. And uh, I, I felt quite rather relieved that most suttas do not show such substantial differences. Satipatthana Sutta is exceptional for that. Most suttas are much closer. Yes, uh, at the back and then the lady in front. Yeah. Yes. These doctrinal categories are found as much in the Chinese Agamas as in the Pali discourses. And the actual practice of seeing the, the rise and fall of the aggregates is also mentioned often in the Chinese discourses. So there's no, there's no basic difference. It's just a question of do we put it under the heading of contemplation of dhammas in Satipatthana or not. That's the basic only difference. Yeah. Yeah. Looking at no self in the body. Yeah. So there's really not, um, you haven't mentioned anything about the breath. Exactly. It's interesting that that it's more about really looking at the body as this is a natural thing. Yeah. And this is how it passes. Yeah. 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 That That is the flavor that I also get. The anapanasati, the mindfulness of breathing, is mentioned in one of the Chinese versions and not at the beginning. But in the Chopin, it's not mentioned at all. So when we look at it from the academic, historical, critical perspective, our feeling is contemplation of the body is really to know the nature of the body and, as you rightly said, not identify with that. Know it as something made of anatomical parts, of elements, and something that's going to be dying. And watching postures comes clear comprehension with any activities, mindfulness of breathing. It comes elsewhere in the Chinese Agamas, under the gradual path. We, we will see the, uh, the mindfulness of breathing. We have a very, very close Chinese parallel to the 16 steps, but they do not necessarily put it under contemplation of the body. These are contemplations of the body, no doubt, but the original flavor we get from satipatthana of the body is precisely knowing the nature of the body and, as you perfectly well said, not identifying with it. And I feel, I'm coming to you right away, I feel that is also the beauty of comparative study. I mean, I'm not doing these academic things just for fooling around, but it gives me a kind of, it gives me a clear edge on how to lead the practice. Yes, please. Well, it's basically, I am, my, my sister works in the intensive care unit in the hospital, so she's described to me what it is like when somebody dies. 
and I've also seen somebody die, and there is these 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 different stages, like when they 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 they, they start to lose liquid. And then their, their hands and fingers get bluish because they lose temperature, they lose control over temperature. And there's this, this gasping kind of breath. So I'm just imagining myself going through these stages and finally letting go of the final breath and letting go of the body and, and feeling very free. That is very simply sad what I, what I do. Just, just, just lying in bed and imagining now this, the final time has come and I'm losing control of the liquids and losing control of temperature and hands are getting cold. <sighs> and it's very peaceful, but it also has the effect of making me really work. I'm I'm very disciplined and intense worker. I meditate a lot, I do a lot of academic work. I really want to use my time. I'm I'm not a socializer. I'm not looking TV or anything. I have no time for that. There's this much of time I got out of die, and I want to do the best out of it, for myself and for others. It's a very powerful practice. I mean, I know this is, uh, yeah, you are all meditators, but if I would be speaking in the wider American society recommending, look at your anatomical parts of the body and contemplate on death, they would say, hey, what is he doing? You know? But when one does it properly, I mean, we have reports, even in the suttas, some monks who did the contemplation of the anatomical parts and they did it a little bit too much and the final result was not very good. But if one does it in a balanced way, it becomes very strong and very joyful. In fact, uh, when I talk about meditation, joy is always so central. This is something I, I would like to, you all to take along the joy of seeing my bhikkhunis coming for my talk, the joy of sitting in deep meditation. Joy is absolutely essential. Any more questions? Yes, please. Yes, uh, and your seven factors of awakening. Slightly louder. Uh, are they always the same uh, sequence in, in your comparison, like the, uh, uh, the first, the, uh, the awakening factors and the stabilizing factors? Here we have them. They are in all the versions the same. There's no differences in the parallel versions. The seven factors of awakening, I'm not aware of any variation. This is a core teaching and there's, there's just no way of uh, making any changes. And they have, they have a logic in themselves. They build up on each other. And then there's the number one is to be used at any time. Number two, three, four are to be used at the time when the mind is sluggish. Give it a push. And tranquility, concentration, equanimity, when the mind is excited to calm it down. And they all build on each other, and all seven together, so time for you to. Yeah. Yes, please. You do indicate that mindfulness of breathing is not in the original, so we, when you hear people saying that the Buddha said you can just do that, mindfulness of breathing, the Buddha did not say anything about mindfulness of breathing. Not at all. Mindfulness of breathing is found in the parallel versions, but not in Satipatthana. So we are just going to do some mindfulness of breathing of the 16 steps, and after we have done the meditation, I will tell you about the differences. They are very, very minor. So the 16 step of mindfulness of breathing is definitely an early teaching. The question is only, do we put this under the heading of contemplation of the body within the Satipatthana scheme? That is the only question. 
If you wish, you can develop the seven factors of awakening with mindfulness of breathing, definitely. We are, we are, not, we are not saying something is completely late. We are only uh, talking about where something is put, whether I put this piece of paper on this table or not. But the piece of paper is there, it's the same. The, the, the Pali version puts the piece of paper, the mindfulness of breathing, under the heading of contemplation of body in the Satipatthana Sutta. One of the Chinese versions does the same. But another Chinese version doesn't have it in Satipatthana, but it has it somewhere else. So we are not questioning mindfulness of breathing as such. We are just talking about, hey, what is contemplation of the body really about? And from that perspective, we get the feeling the core idea of contemplation of the body is this understanding the nature, the not-self, as she said. But, and this is what we are going to look at soon, the mindfulness of breathing has a very close interrelation with the four satipatthanas, because you can practice all four with it. But we talk about that later. <laughs> yes, please. When you, uh, in, in your talk, you're really talking about early Buddhism and saying what, what was in the earliest text that we have mm -hmm. and what was not. You're not really speaking to what would necessarily be the way a particular tradition is teaching it. Definitely. And I just want to make sure that all of the, the, the people here understand that, that in the way the Theravadan teaches the Satipatthana Sutta can be the uh, very effective way of teaching Definitely, it. definitely. So if you could say a little bit about that distinction. You see, the, the, the point of my whole work with comparative study is just to show where the different traditions started. It is not an evaluation of the tradition itself. It's just, 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 just giving this kind of reference point, but as, we, as I try to say with the body contemplation, I'm just, just getting that feeling of what is the basic flavor of contemplation of the body. But obviously all the other exercises that are there in the Pali version are very meaningful. And this is not, it's not, it's not a giving a judgment, this is good, this is bad. We are living 2,500 years away from the Buddha. It, it can't be done exactly as 2,500 years ago, obviously. And every tradition has its right. Somebody practicing Dzogchen, talking about non-dual mindfulness, very beautiful, very powerful. I, I, I had a beautiful meeting with one Dzogchen master who passed away. But still I can be aware of the fact that the idea of non-dual mindfulness is not early Buddhism. That doesn't mean that that wonderful Tulko Urjan Rinpoche, I don't know, some of you might know him, that that wonderful master, that's something wrong with him, or that's not at all the point. Each tradition has its right to do its way, and each teacher has his way or her way of having lived and practiced the Dharma, of expressing it. Just that, together with that, we have that historical critical awareness, where do they come from? That's all. Shall we practice now? Yeah. Just one second. So, thank you for, for that explanation in that way. One, one problem that students in the West are confronted with is that various scholars or various people will take different views and say, with a tonality of judgment. Yeah, so, I know. Uh, how students are supposed to practice and not get lost in that. Do you have any advice 
for them in terms of that? That's difficult, Philip. That's a question where I am not able to pull out the good answer right away out of my sleeves. <laughs> it was a task for myself, how to deal with academics. Because academics are not only sometimes not practitioners, they're, not, they're even not only not Buddhist, they're sometimes against Buddhism actually. And they have this idea that you have to deconstruct these ideas of these believers. And so there's this, there's, that is uh, something where one has to be very careful. And I ha sometimes have that, that uh, especially, not so much Theravans, I have a lot of Chinese friends in the Chinese tradition, and for them it's very challenging. I mean, there's things like, hey, Heart Sutra was written in China, you know? Ooh, that is so central to Mahayana Buddhism, and this scripture is not only not from the Buddha, it was originally written in China and then retranslate into, into Sanskrit. How to deal with that, how to integrate that, and many scholars are not aware of the fact that they are dealing with the living tradition. I mean, the sisters remember when we were at that, 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 that Bikuni Congress and Professor von Hinewa came up with this idea that there were no Buddhist nuns at the Buddhist time. And, and he's just put some ideas together, he comes to this conclusion without the least awareness of what does that mean for actual Bikunis? So these academics, uh, we always have to take them with a little bit of salt. <laughs> and without being dogmatic about our own practice, but make our own practice the judging stone. Rely on our own experience and see if something is kusala, skillful, wholesome. That's the way to go. Remaining open to other traditions, remaining open to what the academics say, but rely on this, what for me is the core teaching that basic distinction between kusala na kusala, dukkha samodaya dukkha nirola. That's the, the core. Yeah, now it's time for us to do a little bit of sitting, I think. Yeah. So if you can all get yourself into a kind of posture that resembles that of a really strong meditator. And as we start, we take a few very long and deep taken some long breath, we let the breath naturally become calmer and shorter, naturally. does not really matter where you feel the breath. Can be the nose tip, can be the belly, 
can be without any kind of specific physical location. Just being aware of the breath as it naturally calms down. As we are becoming aware of the breath, who is becoming softer and softer, naturally our awareness stretches out to become aware of the whole body in its sitting position. And we allow the body to relax. We let go of any tension in the shoulders, in the face. Let it all sink into the ground while at the same time being aware of the in-breathing and the out-breathing. <coughs> Everything calm, breath is calm, body is calm. And out of this calmness, naturally there arises joy, a very quiet joy at the beginning. But as we pay attention to it, it becomes stronger. Joy and happiness. We allow ourselves that joy and happiness. We are entitled to it. And that joy and happiness fills our whole being. And we are aware of it, together with the in-breath and the out-breath.
being aware of the in-breath and the out-breath, being aware of joy and happiness, and also being aware of any other activity in the mind. We allow all of this to calm down the breath, the joy, the happiness, and any other thing in the mind. We allow it to become calm. Like an ocean without waves, calm and quiet. Calm and quiet. with the quietening down of all mental activities. We become aware of mind itself, like a raw gem. Brilliant mind. Calm and quiet mind. All the way being aware of in-breath and out-breath. And the calm mind. Joy arises again. This wonderful discovery of the mind. And we allow that joy to rise and calm down again. Mind rests in itself. <coughs> Mind has become free, free from hindrances. And at this point, also free from our interference, we allow it to be just the way it is. Breathing in, calm and quiet mind, breathing out.
sooner or later, that calmness, that quietness will fade away. And as it fades away, we see with insight, impermanent. Even this wonderful experience is impermanent. All the beauty, all the joy, it fades away. Viraga. Everything comes to an end, to cessation. And we let go. We let go of the experience. We let go of ourselves. Letting go. slowly come back to awareness of this room. Meditation is coming to a conclusion. Slowly we open our eyes. Back from this to the world of talking and listening to talks. <laughs> Thank you very much. That was a very quick run through the 16 steps of mindfulness of breathing. Entirely subjective, entirely what the Sanali has been blowing up, not in accordance with the commentaries, certainly not the only way, but one way how one could practice it. This fella is not working, so somebody meditatively can give me a hand to get it working again. Breathing in, computer not working. Breathing out, computer still not working. Impermanence. But I'm not letting it go now. <laughs> oh, he didn't want to meditate. That was too long for him. Ah. And it says battery is low. Continue with system resume. It's getting really entertaining now. <coughs> there we are. Thank you very much. Now we look at what we have just been doing. And I'm just noting by the side the very minor differences in the Chinese version. I have translated the Chinese version and done a comparative study that appeared in the Buddhist Studies Review in, I think, 2007 or so. So these four first steps, long breath, short breath, 
experiencing the whole body or experiencing all bodily activities according to the Chinese and calming down bodily activities, these fall under the heading of being contemplation of the body. And in the Pali version, the explanation why this is so is not entirely clear. There I prefer the Chinese. It simply says because these are bodily phenomena. And the Chinese continues throughout with that type of explanation. I think that makes more sense. Then the experience of joy, the experience of happiness, becoming aware of any activity in the mind and calming those mental activities. This falls under the rubric of the second Satipatthana, contemplation of feeling. Again, because we are dealing here with something related to feeling. Becoming aware of the mind, that which underlies thought, the raw mind, experiencing the happiness of the raw mind, concentrating the mind and setting it free. This falls under contemplation of the mind. This goes very much in a samatha direction, most of you probably noticed. Still, it's a form of contemplation of the mind under Satipatthana. And then the development of insight, very relevant when we practice samatha as our main vehicle. That when we come out of the samatha experience, we go for the impermanence. The Chinese there you see is a little different. It has eradication, dispassion, cessation. And I have no academic argument, but I prefer the Pali version. It, it makes just from my own practice, it makes a lot of sense impermanence, then fading away. This is viraga. Viraga is such a powerful term. It combines the fading away aspect of impermanence with dispassion. Very beautiful. Cessation, eroda, and letting go. This and simile I'll use with my meditators uh, who like samatha meditation. I say the, the mind is like a raw gem. You and I, if we see a raw gem, we don't even know it is a gem because it, we can't recognize it. Only the specialist knows it. But now in meditation, we start to polish it. It gets cut. becomes a crystal clear, brilliant, sparkling in the light. The mind in deep concentration. So wonderful. But what would we do with it? If you have a beautiful gem, am I going to carry it around all the time? It needs a rim, something to keep it in place. That rim is anicca-sanya, perception of impermanence. Perception of impermanence keeps the gem of the concentrated mind in the proper place for us to progress towards liberation. But that was just a by the way, remark. What I wanted to notice is that we are actually being taught, and as I said, the 16-step Chinese party, very similar, so we can be fairly sure we are dealing with an early teaching. We are actually being told that with one object, all four Satipatthanas can be practiced, as you can see here. 
is a single object of meditation, mindfulness of breathing, which at least in the Pali and one of the Chinese version falls under contemplation of body, all four satipatthanas can be practiced. And I think it's legitimate to draw from that the inference that this basically allows us to choose one particular object of contemplation and then to apply the four satipatthanas to it as a four-faceted approach for fully understanding it. If we put that into practice, it becomes very flexible and very interesting. Now I come to my third topic. Just again, we looked at the four satipatthanas. We played a little bit around with mindfulness of breathing and the 16 steps. We saw the four satipatthanas all coming together in action within one object. Three satipatthanas. That's new, no? Most of us haven't heard of it. What is it? Something that the Buddha practices. This is not an exercise recommended for all of us, but it's the Buddha's practice of three satipatthanas. And they are quite different. It describes his remaining established in mindfulness in three types of situations. When his disciples all do not listen, you are very nice, you're not giving me any opportunity for that. when some listen, some do not listen, and when all listen. The original source is Salayatana Vibhanga Sutta, Majjhima Nikaya 137. We have a Chinese and a Tibetan parallel, and we have quite a range of sources where these three are mentioned. The Pali one is the only one according to which the Buddha reacts differently in these three situations. And I am quite convinced that this is a transmission error. Pi version says that when they do not listen, he is not satisfied. When all listen, he is satisfied. All the other versions say his reaction is always the same. He always remains with equanimity. And in my comparative studies, I have often found that you see the or friends in ancient India, when they want to say no, they put an a before something. So, paper, a paper is no paper. And the problem is that this a, when there is another word before that has a vowel, that a disappears. So for somebody who is not so good with these Indic languages, it's sometimes a little bit like, are they saying no or yes no? It's a little bit difficult sometimes to tell. And I found quite a number of uh, cases where I think the distinction between yes and no has gone lost, either already in the oral transmission or at the time of translation. And the difference for the Pali version is just between attamanacha hoti or anattamanacha hoti. And there's uh, several variant readings. I checked the Burmese, Ceylonese, and Thai editions, there are several variant readings. So I just suspect that there has, in the oral transmission, something's gone wrong. And I mean, in the, due to the range of sources that we have that all agree that the point is the Buddha remains equally equanimous, I think we can safely draw the conclusion that that is the point. So it means he is there, willing to teach, 
and it does not make a difference to his mental conditions whether everybody listens, whether some listen or nobody listens. This is a very powerful statement about the Buddha as a teacher, but now I'm asking you, hey, what's this to do with the four Satipatthanas? Is this contemplation, body, feeling, mind, dharmas? Where do I put it? How do I get them together? Isn't it completely different? Still it's called Satipatthana, the same word. Smirti Upashtana. Any suggestions? Feeling. Feeling. Contemplation of feeling. You would put it under contemplation of feeling. Thank you. Any other suggestion? Don't think that I know, huh? <laughs> Under mind states. Thank you. I'm sorry, I didn't see you. Right. So apart from contemplation of the body, we got them all, right? (laughs) (laughs) The different perspectives that you have kindly given already show it's not easy to match it, right? It's a different scheme. What strikes me, just my opinion, is the equanimity. That is where I draw a bridge. It's kind of from my own practice, whenever I come out of long retreats, that's the feeling I get, the equanimity, this wonderful state of balance. And we have it in Satipatthana Sutta, not in the actual exercises, but there's this part that comes after every exercise, contemplating internally and externally, rising, falling, passing away. And then there's this Anisito Chaviharati, Nanchalo Kinchi Loke Upadiyati. He or she dwells independent and does not latch on to anything in the world, if I'm translating a little bit freely. That is where Satipana is supposed to get us. And the Buddha is already there at that point. So that is how I would put them together. That gives me a flavor of what Satipatthana is about. A development of mindfulness that is going to lead me to a state of balance, a state of equanimity. That is just my interpretation. You are perfectly free to disagree and have other ideas. I'm still thinking about it. I'm still hoping that somebody comes up with other ideas and I get a better understanding. Now, if we talk about equanimity, what does that mean? And I think an important aspect of Satipatthana practice is that there's also an element of evaluation. There is a clear element of deliberate evaluation in Satipatthana practice. And this is a little different from the idea of mindfulness we sometimes get in modern days of non-judgmental, non-conceptual. That's fine, but if that means no concept at all, 
no evaluation at all, I think we are not really there what the early Buddhist sources say. You see, I have uh, just some examples that we looked at. The body is being distinguished between being non-beautiful or even impure. I have uh, recently done some more research and my own impression is that the impure idea is probably not as original as the not beautiful. Uh, Suchi is the term we find in the Pali, Bujing in the Chinese. But that is not only my own practice. When I do my own reviewing of the body, I don't get anything about impurity. I just see it very as it is. It's not beautiful, it's not also particularly ugly, it's just the body. And that is also, maybe some of you remember, there's this simile that goes with that. There's a Obatomukamutoli um, kind of cloth container for sawing, maybe this shape, small hole below, put all kind of grains inside, and they were using it for sawing. So you look inside and you see like uh, lentils and peas and rice. It's not impure, no? But it's not beautiful, it's also not ugly, it's just lentils and rice and peas. And that is the feeling that I get from the exercise. But even non-beautiful is an evaluation. Worldly, unworldly is an evaluation. Lustful mind, angry mind is an evaluation. So mindfulness clearly can coexist with evaluation. Though this equanimity means that we we stay balanced with evaluation, the type of deliberate evaluation that's going to lead us on towards awakening. So my suggestion, common ground between the three and the four establishments of mindfulness is that presence of awareness and the equanimity. That is what I suggest as the basic flavor behind the term. I am obviously not saying that our friend here is doing Satipatthana. <laughs> I'm just giving you that image to get that feeling of what I'm trying to talk about. And here we have a canonical quote from the those who always proceed with mindfulness proceed evenly among what is uneven. Yeah, that is what I had in mind to tell you. And we still have ample time for questions, comments, criticism, anything that comes to your mind. And I'll try to remain evenly with whatever you say. Mm-hmm. Could you say how the mindfulness of breathing is practiced with Satipatthana or vice versa? How do you practice Satipatthana with mindfulness of breathing? Yeah, that was what I was trying to show that uh, by doing it in these 16 steps, one is actually able to proceed through all four Satipatthanas. It's not really saying a phrase in my mind. I think what we do before is that we kind of memorize these 16 steps so we have a clear idea of how it works. 
but then it's a, it's a, to some degree a natural development that we encourage. It's not that I'm, I'm going, no long, no short. It's not that I'm working through these things. But it's also not that I just watch the breath and everything else will happen by itself. It's not one of these two extremes. But it's, uh, the image I like to use is, uh, imagine we are sitting in a canoe and we are driving down a river. And the river is flowing and we are flowing with this canoe and the trees go by, the sky is wide open. And I'm completely with this flowing experience, but at the same time, I have my paddle in hand. I don't need to paddle. The river is carrying me on. But when the boat is going towards the left side, I'm putting my paddle in just to keep it back to the middle. If it starts to move towards the right side, I put the paddle in on the other side just to keep it back to the middle. So it's a natural process. I'm driving down the river with the boat, but I keep stirring at the experience. And specifically when you go to the first step of contemplation of feeling, that joy, the joy of the body that has calmed down needs encouragement. It needs to be seen that there's a joy and that needs to be encouraged because for many of us, at least I had that problem for quite a long time in my early stages of my meditation practice that I did not feel entitled to joy. I thought, I'm going to get out of Dukkha and I'm going to get out of it like this. <laughs> and that didn't work. That didn't work at all. So then, that's a, that's a very important point. And another difficult point is when to experience the mind, the raw mind, the mind in itself. Acham Brahm says that at that point, it's usually when the nimitta arises. And the freeing of the mind, that is where jhana can happen. And for jhana, for absorption to happen, there needs to be, the mind needs to be left to itself. Many of, uh, especially males, especially Westerners, when we try to get concentrated, we are working and concentrating and concentrating and concentrating and somehow nothing happens and nothing happens and why and I keep concentrating. It's just below there. It's just there. You just need that little letting go, letting the mind do the rest itself. There's a lot of building up in the beginning. I do not deny that. The thoughts have to be out. But at a certain point, the mind naturally wants to go into absorption. But Western males like me are very, very good of stopping it from it by wanting to concentrate. <laughs> so there are certain parts where there needs to be clarity of what we are going for and a paddle at the right side of the canoe. Yeah, I think I answered your question. I would first of all like to have some others and then I come back to you. Yes? I had a question. I was wondering about the three marks, if they were included in the early Buddhist texts. They are definitely everywhere found, yeah. There's no question about that. Three marks are so essential. Yeah. Yes? Um, how do you How do you hold the, um, the, I don't know if I can word it um, succinctly, but, but the intention behind <coughs> the, the, the teachings versus the actual methodology that is being articulated? So for example, what I'm, 
what I'm sensing from the mindfulness of the body is that you know there are some paths that are suggested, but it's really the non-identification um, of of self that the contemplation is being offered. So, so is it? Um, uh, so, is do you feel that the method, the actual methodology that's being offered, is in is as important as the intention behind um, the? Um, the, um, mm. the teachings. And, and so where I'm leading to is around the fourth foundation mm. is if there is um, only two or three areas that are in common with all of the Agamas and the, and the Pali Canon, um, is it really important which Dhammas that we focus on when we go into that contemplation or is it really um, just um, looking at what um, what aspects lead to freedom, what you know. Uh, it's a very very interesting question, and I think from a practical viewpoint, I wouldn't want to say yes or no, black and white. I would want each of us to find his own position in the spectrum between these two. So there is specifically when we are struggling to work out our practice, that it's very useful to have methods, very clear-cut methods to start with. And, uh, yeah, those that I see that uh, reject method from the outset, there's quite a number of them that just turn in circles. But it's also a problem of holding on to methods, because sometimes method might obstruct the, the, the point we are trying to understand. It's a little bit like that simile of the raft. Uh, we've got to know if we are on this side of the shore or on the other. If I want to get over, I need a raft. Once I'm there, I don't need it anymore. So that, that's a little bit... Some, each of us, with the maturity of our practice, needs to find how much method and how much just the basic meaning is sufficient. And particularly this checking for our own maturity of practice is another aspect of mindfulness. So it's actually very helpful to see how much I need and how much I don't need. There's a stupid example that comes to my mind. I, a long time ago I was in Shanghai at the, at the, where, they, where they do the music, how do you call it, music academy. And there was a friend of mine, he had never studied any notes, but he was a beautiful flutist. And he always just played. But all the Chinese friends, they had studied notes. They were extremely good with the instrument, but they didn't know just to play. So when he started, they were saying, uh, what are you playing now? Give us the notes. <laughs> they said, hey, there's no notes, man. I'm just feeling it. <laughs> but, but how do you do it? They, they're really struggling with it. But when you listen to them, the way they were making sound was much more precise than his. So it would have been ideal if somebody had studied the notes and that kind of flexibility of just playing. And I think it's the same with meditation. We get methods, we sometimes get very detailed methods, and they can be very useful if we, if we handle them properly. If we don't hold on to them, no, I can't use it anymore. I can just hold on to it for the purpose it's necessary and then drop it. 
And for that dropping, this is precisely what I'm trying to, to say. That's very good you asked that question. I was trying to give that basic taste. So the basic taste of the first Satipatthana is the body is not attractive, not beautiful, going to pass away, non-identification. The basic flavor of contemplation of feeling is this, this just this not letting ourselves get carried away. You remember our friend? Ah, so painful, ah, so painful. No, not like that. The basic contemplation of mind to go beyond that stream of thoughts that's carrying me away to that basic state of mind and contemplation of dharmas to develop the factors of awakening. That gives us a basic flavor. And if we don't need a method, we can just work with that. But if we feel a method is useful, and for many of us it is useful, then we just have that as a kind of direction, we work with the method. Very powerful question, thank you. <laughs> yes? Yes. And then as a practitioner, you've used quite a range of methods um, and looked at what's most useful. And I'm wondering, is there an overlap? Do you find that the older practices are more useful? Or do you find that yeah. the later... <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Actually, that, that is what got me into that direction. Yeah, so, so what I'm saying now is not in any way against uh, Buddha Gosa, Visuddhi Magha, Theravada commentaries. They are very important works. They are much closer to the early scriptures than we are nowadays. But when I started to meditate and I tried to use the Visuddhi Magha, several things didn't, just didn't work for me. Like, I mean, a very good uh, example is loving kindness. I'm an anger type. I was a very aggressive person before. You don't believe it, but I tell you. <laughs> Very aggressive. A lot of anger. First retreat was like, <sighs> boiling with anger. And then this, may I be happy, may you be happy, may she be happy. <sighs> <laughs> and whenever I tried to call up somebody, just anger came up. And, and it just, um, this loving kindness didn't change anything. For two years, it was like walking through a desert. And then that was... Thanks to Bhikkhu Bodhi, I was introduced to the suttas, and I suddenly said, hey, they nowhere talk about this, myself, neutral, friend, enemy, that, that's not there at all. Uh-huh. So how do they do it? Yeah, you just develop mind, metta in the heart and spread it in all directions. And from the moment I started to practice that, it suddenly worked. And, and now loving kindness is my main meditation object, my, my samatha practice. So that, that, that kind of... I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm pleased. Do not think now I'm saying that this commentary method is wrong. Please, I'm not saying that. It's a wonderful method. Many people use it very well, but I'm one of those for whom it did not work. And this is why I've gone back to the suttas. And there I found what works. And that is why I started this whole compar com com comparative study. Because I suddenly saw, okay, there's this, there's this. This is the way how tradition... In my case, Theravada tradition introduces me to the practice of meditation, that's fine, but at some point it just doesn't work for me, and that's the touching stone. If it doesn't work, then I have to look, I have to find out why it doesn't work, and at first I thought it's my fault. Somehow I'm just not a person for meta, so forget about it. But that's actually not the case. There's several doors, like we have several doors to this room. There's several doors. 
And sometimes in the suttas we can find that door. In fact, I'm planning to write a book on metta as a companion to the Satipatthana, only that for the timing I still don't have the time. But uh, loving-kindness is just such a wonderful practice. It's so powerful. It can give so much. And so simple. It's just opening the heart and radiating out. You can do it everyday life. You can go into jhanas if you wish. Wonderful practice. Thank you for the question. Any other comment or question? Yes, please. It sounds like the part in the refrain that's about internally and externally is not yeah. something that's found in common with those different The internal and external is also found in the Ekotarika Agama version, the very short version. And we also have it in a number of later works like in the Shravaka Bhumi of the Yogacara Bhumi, in the Great Pratnaparamita, in the Mahavibhasha, in the Mahapratnaparamita Upadesha Shastra. So I do think there are good chances that this is part of the original idea, but the interpretation is difficult. What does it mean, internal, external? Am I going to watch Ayatataluka's breath now? Is it going in? Is it going on? Can't see it. How am I going to do that? And there's different interpretations of that. Shall we go into that a little bit, or? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There's different. So if we if we work through the historical layers, the earliest we get is um, Janavasava Sutta. Yeah, Janavasava Sutta, Diganikaya, where we are told to watch Bahida, the external. It's somebody else. That is, seems to be the earliest understanding. And in Janavasava Sutta, I think it's Janavasava Sutta, I hope I'm quoting properly, uh, the idea is to develop concentration. You develop concentration up to the level that you're actually able to see somebody else's state of mind. And the argument that I make <coughs> in my book, I think, somewhere, is that that's a little difficult because then to be aware of your state of mind, I actually need to <laughs> sit for quite some time, get my jhanas together. You just wait there. I'm coming back. <laughs> I'm going to check on you. <laughs> it makes it a little difficult for all of us. But there's uh, another passage in another sutta which says there are four ways of knowing the condition of somebody else's mind. And one is this telepathic ability. But uh, the others are nimittang disvaadisati, having seen a sign, an external mark, sadang sutvaadisati, having heard a sound, and sadang sutva vitakati vicharati, I think. I don't remember exactly. So, anyway, these three are having seen some external manifestation, sign, characteristic mark, having heard a sound and having heard a sound and reflected on it. So let's try. What nimitta are you seeing? Hey, he's angry, no. There's a certain bodily posture, a certain kind of face that goes with anger. And if I start talking like this, that's the sound of anger. And sometimes I might not be talking like this, but the words I say afterwards on reflection, I can go, hey, I think he got angry. So there are certain very simple and natural ways for us to see the condition of somebody one else. 
And this is obviously not something done just in sitting meditation. Satipatthana is not only about sitting meditation. It is precisely about dealing with people, situations, all of you know, at work, in family, wherever. So there are ways for us to know what's happening with somebody one else through these external kind of observations. And the understanding that Ajata Bahida, this internal, external, refers to myself and others is also found in early Abhidharma. We have it in the Vibhanga of the Theravada tradition and in the Dharma Skanda, preserved in Chinese, of the Sarvastivada tradition. But if we go down a little bit further in history, we come to, for example, Shravaka Bhumi of the Yogacara Bhumi, Yogacara. We get a whole range of different interpretations similar to the different interpretations given by modern teachers. So it seems clear that already within Buddhist traditions there were different ideas about what this actually means. And I think we cannot narrow it down to just myself and others. Other interpretations are possible. We leave it open for everybody of you to choose. And just my feeling that this myself and others is probably the one that makes most sense to me and might be the earliest idea. And we keep in mind that mindfulness of breathing was probably not part of the earliest formulation of Satipatthana Sutta. So maybe that Ajahdabhita was not originally meant to apply to mindfulness of breathing. And then a little story of how it could still be done. So a friend of mine, meditation teacher in Sri Lanka, He's passing away. We are in the hospital. His relatives have not yet come. All this has not yet started. We're just meditators sitting around him. And he's breathing. (gasps) This heavy breathing. Anybody of you who's been to the intensive care unit, you know what I'm talking about. And we see this. this, uh, this, he He has let go of his body. He doesn't care about dying. But the body is still gasping for breath. And all of us sitting around there, we We love him. He's such a close friend, but it's time for him to go. We let him go. And we see this body just laboring for breath. When I went back after he had passed away, I went back up to my hut to meditate. I tell you, my mindfulness of breathing practice has completely changed. I suddenly realized what it means to be aware of the breath. What the breath means. The breath spells life and death every second. I did not understand that until I had that experience. So I would claim that this is a way of doing mindfulness of breathing externally. And uh, my, only canonical, uh, uh, my only authority is the Shravaka Bhumi. The Shravaka Bhumi says precisely that. I read that much later than this actual experience. It says, mindfulness of breathing internally is when I see it on myself. Mindfulness of breathing externally is when I see that a dead body doesn't breathe anymore. <laughs> Yeah, that's what I had on internal and external. Philip? What about the four characteristics or qualities of, of energy and clear comprehension, mindfulness and free from discourse and discontent? Again, I think they are not mentioned in one of the Chinese parallels, but they are found in a whole range of later sources. Yeah, I don't remember offhand. They are also found in the great Prajnaparamita. 
definitely Shravakabhumi, I think. Dashabhumika even. As a quote. Yeah, I can't I can't list the sources offhand. I have them in my comparative study of the Majimanikaya. I have them all listed down. This is one of the other cases where, even though they are not found in all of the Chinese versions, we can be fairly confident something of that type uh, is relatively early. Yeah. And would you say something about the clear comprehension? Yeah, I, I, my, my own feeling is that if we go by the term sampajanya, pajanya is panya, pranya, wisdom. So it's with wisdom. And I think it's that, that, that input of wisdom on top of the mindful awareness that is meant. That is my understanding. Sampajana is being explained in different ways. Sometimes it becomes just another type of awareness. But that's not the feeling I get. We have, and sometimes it's been made as just a kind of inside practice that doesn't work because we have this uh, Sampajana Musa Vadi Hoti, something like that. Somebody who, with Sampajana, speaks a lie. So that cannot be with awareness of impermanence and whatever. It means just consciously speaking a lie. Being fully aware that I'm speaking falsehood and I speak falsehood. So I, I think it's that, that recognizing quality. That, that's the way I understand it. We, we always have this uh, jnana dasana, janati pajanati. We have this, this combination of the seeing and the knowing in meditation. And so my interpretation is the seeing is the mindfulness and the understanding is the sampajanya. And in the particular exercise that we have in the Pali discourse of sati sampajanya, uh, about the different ways of uh, doing bodily activities. It's again that, 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 that awareness, of that, that, that knowing of what is appropriate, particularly as a monk, that we wear our robes properly, there's a certain way of doing things. Yeah, that's the way I understand it. Yeah, any other questions? Yes, please. Yes. In relation to the heart in particular, I'm not aware within the textual sources of early Buddhism of anything. And I think this Goenka technique works in that direction. They do a kind of scanning of the body. So maybe that is something you might like to try out. 
And I know that I think, uh, yeah, Pantapima City in Sri Lanka, he, we had a discussion about that and he advised not to concentrate on the heart because you might be interfering with something there <laughs> and it might give you trouble. So I would be very careful about that. I mean, if it if it's comes naturally and you do it very softly, maybe. But uh, the heartbeat is something that, I mean, he... It's said that very advanced meditators, they can, they can stop it for a little while and then let it go on, and so get the doctor crazy when they're in the hospital. But uh, that takes a lot of expertise, and uh, so I would be very careful with that. And I understand that mindfulness of breathing is not for all of us. Mindfulness of breathing is very widely propagated in the Theravada tradition because it was the practice the Buddha practiced himself. But, I mean, I do no longer practice mindfulness of breathing because I found something else that works better for me, which is loving-kindness. So when I was telling about these 16 steps, that was like kind of scratching my memory from a couple of years ago. How did I do it that time? Okay, Mm, long breath, you know? That was not really what I'm doing now. And I think you should feel free to let go of mindfulness of breathing if you find something else that works for you. But with the heart, I would be careful. I would be very careful. There's, there's two things, basically the heart and the brain. Some people then they try to really go into the brain, and especially when they're... Ooh, sister. <laughs> May I... Yeah, I have a friend who did that too, and now he has such headache that he can't meditate anymore, and that's for a couple of years now. Yeah. There's two areas where we want to be careful. One is the brains, particularly if you get some small pain and you start to concentrate on it and divide it, that's not the thing to do. And also the heart. It's, it's better to be careful with these areas, and there's so many other things we can do that uh, are less dangerous, so I'd suggest, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you brought it up and I can comment on that. No, I, these things are completely fine. I mean, this naturally comes. You, you're there and these things become somewhat prominent and also it's a little bit fascinating. But that friend of mine is an Israelian and he became a monk now, but he still can't really meditate. He has this, ex- almost like Bikubodhi. He has this, Bikubodhi didn't get it from meditation though. This, this really pressing down headache and it's very terrible. And he messed it up himself because there was a little pain and he wanted to go into it. Check it, analyze it, that's what I'm supposed to do, that's we pass on, chung, 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 chung. And then it didn't stop anymore. Oof, 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 oof. Yeah, we don't want that. I, I teach that same thing for years uh, from a different tradition. So, so really not do that, not come to like the heart and all. This is, this is really worth listening to. Afterwards, and then first her, and then I come to you. No expertise. Well, it brings up for me around, usually my door in to meditation is I've had pain in my body for like 12 years, and mm. so I bring presence and awareness to the pain. Yeah. So, and it's on my right side, is that not wise? Or? Well, I'm not saying that we shouldn't go into pain. I go myself into pain. There's certain normally dangerous area for all of us, and I don't know exactly what you have. You might want just to talk with the physician. If they say that it's not a problem to be aware of it, then you're perfectly fine. How do you practice with your pain in your body? I'd love to hear that because it's something that I've 
Well, I, I, I just stay with it. I just watch it, and it, it, it and, and then uh, it gives me a lot of detachment from the body. I have, I have some, some spinal problem, so there's like two of these fellas are very close together, and when they meet, it's really ex- excruciating pain, and I can't sleep, and, and I, I walk like I walk like this, and 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 I'm just just aware of it, and I smile at myself. It's a, it's a smiling kind of awareness of the condition of this body, and it gives a lot of what she said, anatta. It gives me a strong anatta kind of experience. I don't want to push it out or push it in. I'm just aware of it as it is. And I get this, 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 <laughs> look what the fellow is doing again kind of feeling. That's the way I deal with it. But there are many ways of working with pain. Well, it's the, when it's there, I don't need to bring attention to it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just being aware of it and not trying to run away from it. That's the thing. And I'm not wanting it to stop or wishing it away or anything. I, I see the mind sometimes wants to jump. Yeah. And I say, hey, no need to jump. Fine here. That, that's all. But pain can give a lot of this viraga, this dispassion. And being aware of it when it arises comes with us after it's gone. So when there comes any kind of uh, physical well-being, we still remember. Hey, you remember last month? Yeah, I remember. So what's this? Yeah, easy. <laughs> it doesn't carry us away anymore. If we wisely work with pain, it's very, very powerful. Hmm. Yeah, in, in fact it is, yeah. Um, so I'm, I too had, had trouble in the beginning with Metta, mm. and yet I can feel how powerful it is and how much I need it. Yeah. Very, uh, a taskmaster with myself. Yeah. Um, so I'm... Yeah, I, I, I just let go of all concepts and ideas and I just have the bare mental attitude of metta. And for me, I, I was able... I do not use any kind of phrase. And I mean, uh, for sometimes when I teach it, then I suggest to use some image as a first help. It could be... <coughs> in Sri Lanka, we have this very cute little squirrels, very beautiful with a white stripe. And, and if you look at them, you're just quite... <sighs> that little fellow there, you know. It could be a puppy, it could be a flower, 
anything that gives you that feeling of metta, mitra, friendship, benevolence, let this not be harmed. This is the basic feeling of metta. Anything that gives you that feeling, and as soon as you have that feeling, drop the image. We are not concerned with the image. And after two weeks, you don't need the image. You know what it feels like. And then when you have that feeling, you just allow it to be in the heart, and it naturally becomes stronger, and as it becomes stronger, it spreads. And once you have really established that, if then afterwards you can complement it with the other Brahma-viharas. Mitra, the friend, on an equal level to everybody. Compassion, a feeling that can grow out of metta. It's not metta itself, it's a different thing, but it comes out of metta. In the sutras we get metta so often, the others less, because metta is the basis. To all those who are in a less fortunate situation than I, and the same feeling of joy to all those who are in a better situation than I. And then the equanimity that rounds it off. And once you have these four developed in the practice, you can use them everyday life. These are fitting any kind of situation you meet. You move with loving kindness to the everyday life, and whenever needed, you call up the other three. Wonderful. This is a Brahma Vihar, you're dwelling in heaven. It's a dwelling in heaven. Hmm. I think somebody was over here. Well, then I go there. You get a lightning meter usually. You get a lightning meter and you use that to go into jhana. It's the, 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 the concept of this loving kindness. So it's not just the, the, the basic light of concentration, but that feeling of loving kindness stands behind, but you get a light emitter. It's not the feeling of loving kindness that you Could do, perhaps, I don't know. <laughs> you don't need an emitter, absolutely, you see. But it's more difficult, specifically for us as teachers. If you have a light emitter, it's very easy to tell where you are, and how to progress. But it's principally also possible to go into jhana without a light limiter. It's, but it's a little bit more difficult to know where you are for yourself and specially, specifically for us teachers. But uh, because it's the chitta, the metta chitta, and the mind is luminous by nature, prabhasarang chittang. So as you are aware of the metta chitta, the mind becomes luminous. And so for most of us, the light actually arises. And then it's just like with any other kamatana, you, yeah. There was somebody here in this area. Oh. This is not canonical. This is, no, I just want to be very clear on what I'm saying. This is just the, the idea of using a squirrel or a puppy is my own suggestion. No, I just want to be very clear. I mean, some things I say from practice, some things I say from the canon. I just want to be clear on that. But I found it very useful. Yeah, yeah. 
And once you have that feeling, you don't lose it anymore. Yeah. That feeling of... Mm. Now I know exactly how to Yeah, yeah. Yeah, loving kindness is extremely powerful. And especially for us in the West, I mean, yeah. Yes. Okay. And then could you just parse a little bit the difference between Sama Sampajana and Yoni Soma which is sometimes wise attention? Mm-hmm. They are very close. Sometimes when we talk in sutta terminology, it's not really so easy to put things into separate compartments as they do later in the Abhidharma. Manasikara is making in the mind attention, a faculty present in every state of mind already according to early Buddhism. Yoniso, Yonis the womb, looking at the origin, look, looking penetratively, looking deeply. It, wise, what is it, wise attention you said is a, is a liberal translation, it's not a, not, a, not, a, not a literal translation. A literal translation would be looking at the, the origin, looking, at, looking, looking penetratively. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I, I'm not, criti- this is Bikubodi's translation, I'm, I'm not criticizing the translation, I'm just telling you, if we translate it literally, what is the flavor we get? And I have written a, an entry for Encyclopedia of Buddhism on Yoni Somanasikara, but I don't exactly remember, because that's already like, in 2003 I did that, so it's a little while ago. So offhand, I am not able to point out a real major difference between the two, but they are used differently in the suttas. The Sampajanya usually comes in a more closely meditative context in the gradual path and the Satipatthana Sutta, and then in this phrase about speaking falsehood. The Yoni Sikara seems to come in different contexts. But a very simple thing, if you want to follow this up, is I mean, if you just go for my list of publications, you can just Google Anar your list of publications, or you can go to Wikipedia, there's an entry on me, and at the bottom there's the list of publications. And you just go through, at the end there's all the encyclopedia entries, you can download them all. And there's one on Yonosio Manasikara. That is uh, I, too long ago for me to remember. There was somebody here in this area, I think. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He is a path. The third is uh, the 
cohesively. I mean, it is equally in Monday. Mm. So it's just to expand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you very much. That's a very good approach. You always to see the four, four noble truths everywhere in the teaching. They really go through it. There's the Hatipadopama Sutta, where Venomasari Putta says all the teachings can be caught with the Four Noble Truths just as the footprint of an elephant. You can put any other footprint inside. It's a very good approach. It's very helpful. And the basic scheme is actually based on ancient Indian medicine. There's a Samyukta Agama, a Chinese sutra, that gives us that. There's been some discussion among scholars whether the Buddha was the first to invent the scheme and the Indian medicine took it from him or the other way around. And It's not really settled. But I think that discussion misses the point a little bit. And that Samyukta Agama discourse, it says, just like a doctor, he needs to be able to recognize the disease, know what caused the disease. He needs to be aware of the possible state of health. And he has to prescribe the cure. So too the Buddha teaches the Four Noble Truths. And so I find it rather significant that according to tradition, Dhammachaka Pavatana Sutta, the Four Noble Truth is the way the Buddha expressed his awakening. And we have a range of different versions of this sutra, and they have a number of differences, but they all agree on that basic teaching. So that means in a context in ancient India where people had all these different philosophies, it seems to me the Buddha on purpose used medical terminology to express his understanding. It's very pragmatic to the point and something that we all can practice and there's a little final story and then we have come to the end that I like to tell when I was uh, I need some more water just give me a second <coughs> when I had just become a monk I, I originally ordained in Thailand in 1990 but afterwards I disrupted and reordained in Sri Lanka I kind of thought it's just a question of practicing. I don't need books, just sit. And I was living in a very beautiful place, in a cave up on a mountain by the seaside, perfect conditions, Pindapada, meditating, meditating. But somehow there was nothing really happening. And then a friend gave me Venerable Jnana Ponika's book, Heart of Buddhist Meditation. Oh, what a blessing. (laughs) What a blessing. Suddenly I, I got all this wisdom and suddenly I had a guide, something that was giving me a direction. My practice changed so much. But I said, I, I have to meet this monk. Said, what a wonderful person. And a uh, couple of years later, I got the chance. I went to Sri Lanka. And I arrived on the airport, and somebody asked me, where are you going? I said, I want to meet Venerable Ponik. I said, you know, he passed away four days ago. <laughs> ah! Well, what to do? And I went to a forest hermitage, Sibiku Bodhi, and he later became my Dharma teacher. And he had to go away for some reason, and so he left me to look after the place. And I went into Venerable Ponika's room, and there was the chair in which he had done all his writings. So I, I kind of I sat on the chair, and because I work with this a uh, lot of with Vedana, I suddenly had this feeling like like this this very venerable old monk sitting in his chair, doing all this writing, and I felt like I'm almost like connecting with him. And then I suddenly thought, like, you should look there on the table. And I looked on the table, and there was some thing. I pushed it aside, and there was a small slip of paper. And it said in German, whatever you do, does it lead to Dukkha, or does it lead away from Dukkha? <laughs> That's it. <laughs> what more do we need? 
so succinct, so wonderful. Anything we do, just look at that. Does it, and I put in brackets, for myself and others. Does it lead to dukkha for myself and others? Does it lead away from dukkha for myself and others? That's it. Thank you very much. I don't do these kind of things, I'm sorry. Somebody else can do it. I, I don't, any, any of, can you do that? I give you a microphone. I don't do dedication of merit and these kind of things. Here's the mic. Dukkha Bhatta Janin Dukkha Bhaya Bhatta Janim Bhaya Soka Bhatta Janin Soka Hantu Sambe Pipanino May the suffering be free from suffering. May the fear struck be free from fear. May the grieving be free from grief, so too may all beings be. Thank you very much, Bonte, for being here. Thank really. you very much for giving me all these wonderful questions and ideas. Yes. As uh, Bonte and Philip exit the hall, I have a few announcements for everybody. Uh, first, I'd like to list a few upcoming events at Spirit Rock. This next Saturday, October 22nd, David Rico is here uh, for a special event called Mindfulness and Loving-Kindness in Relationships. Uh, he'll also return in December as well. I believe that's down in the Community Meditation Hall. Uh, the following Saturday, Donald Rothberg uh, leads uh, two half-day sessions. Uh, the morning session is on Mindfulness 101, and the afternoon is on Loving Kindness 101. Uh, Sharda Rogel, who's here today, is leading a, a day long for experienced students. I think a lot of us in this room would fit the bill for that. Um, on November 12th, um, she's leading a day long called Ordinary Mind, Higher Mind, Panning for Gold. Uh, we have a monastic day long with two monks at least two senior monks from Abhayagiri. Um, it's the uh, Thai forest uh, monastery up north uh, near Ukiah. On November 13th, uh, Ajahn Yataka and Ajahn Karunadamo lead a monastic day long on right view, the basis for our meditation practice. And that is a Donna day. Uh, we have one upcoming retreat that I believe is still open. It's the Thanksgiving Insight Meditation Retreat. 
with Andrea Fella, Will Kabat-Zinn, Anushka Fernandapule, who's here, <laughs> there she is, uh, Pat Coffey and Tasia Bell. Uh, that's November 18th through the 22nd. Um, and uh, for, for those of you who have never been to this hall, this is the retreat hall. Um, and so during retreats, um, retreatants stay in uh, the four dorms named after the Brahma Viharas. And all the meditation, all the sitting meditation is inside this hall. Um, so now uh, we'd like to transition for uh, those of you who um, are part of the CDL or DPP program. If you're Spirit Rock staff or a Spirit Rock teacher or if you're a monastic um, please, you're invited to stay with us for a special invite-only uh, Q&A with Venerable Analio. Um, for everyone else, thank you very much for coming. Uh, it's been a special day, and uh, we hope to see you again. Thank you. Announcement. Thank you. If anyone is volunteering to help transition the hall, uh, please report to either myself or Mindy. Thank you.
moved everything off of this stage, these stage blocks, and, um, and all four of these stage blocks, or two under the rug and two under the screen, let's clear everything off of those stage blocks. Sabotons can go in the corner. Um, this tray, maybe just off to the side here for now. Everything to the side, basically. Yeah. stage blocks on their side.
those glasses yeah. and the picture yes. can go, there's inter, an interview room in the recessed mm -hmm. part, yeah. um, the yeah. teacher's lounge. Yeah. Uh, no, but I know where the five interview rooms are along, yeah. right along here. It's the one up the stairs, uh -huh. Okay. up the like three stairs. Yeah. All those could go in there. Great.
starting to move
Singing bowl. Singing bowl. No, that's the bell. Yeah, okay. <laughs>